This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Mark Hamill again said, That was the worst thing I've ever seen, and I was in the Star Wars Holiday Special. Remember that line. Last night's U.S. presidential debate, it's debatable whether it was a debate. Not a whole lot of debating went on. Neither candidate, you could argue, seemed to have a coherent thought of things. It was hard for them to fill their own two minutes, and it certainly was hard for them to keep quiet while the other one was trying to fill his two minutes in answers to any of the questions. Joining us right now is a great friend of London Live, and a man who tweeted the following. I'm breathing easier now. You will too. He's going to lose. It's almost over. And they will make him leave. Where the country goes from here is up to them. A man who we've had on because he lived in the United States as a London-born Canadian. Lived in the United States from the late 90s into that first decade of the 2000s. And has a real keen interest in what is going on in the U.S. still. From Global News Radio 640 Toronto, please welcome Greg Brady back to London Live. Greg, did you think that was a debate? Is it worthy of that description? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, I, and there's many reasons I can lay out why. By the way, that tweet was about Novak Djokovic at the French Open. So once again, <laughs> Mike, you've taken, you've taken my social media and blown it into something completely different. <laughs> By the way, happy happy anniversary! I see today on your social media the documentation of CFPL being uh, nine eighty being ninety eight years old. That's really that's really something. Um, congratulations on the anniversary! Thank you very much. I've been a very small part of it. You are also a part of this same anniversary. Very briefly. I, I came from Windsor was my first job, and then I was working on a, a work visa to get to that very same United States job in Detroit you're talking about, and I came back to work for uh, a, a guy that taught us both in school, uh, Gord Harris, who was the program director of uh, 980 at the time, and uh, he, you know, he was a mentor of mine and recruited me back, hired me at Chorus the first time around, as a matter of fact, in 2007 to work with Bill Waters. And uh, but I knew my my uh, visa was pending, and I got that visa at the end of 1980-98. Mike, would I choose to accept a visa um, again, not against my own free will, in 2020 to work in the United States for a decade? I'm not going to comment on that. I, that's nobody's business. But my, I don't know what I would do right now in 2020, Mike, and and thus we're having this conversation. Okay, let's go back to last night because yeah. I don't know whether to laugh or hide. I'm not sure, but there were some things that that frightened me. I've never been a a huge fan of Joe Biden. I don't know why they chose him on the Democrat side of things. I've never been a huge fan of Trump. I still don't know how he won in 2016 other than, you know, you lump it onto the Electoral College. But in terms of, of what you saw as somebody who has lived in the United States, knows the politics down there, and is somebody who looks at, hey, these are the two possibilities, what did you see? Well, I saw a lot. I, I saw that I was wrong a month ago when I, I deemed it silly of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, to even you know go out there publicly and suggest, not for a lack of confidence in Joe Biden, but that suggests that, that maybe he's better off not debating uh, Joe Biden. I don't believe that Joe Biden, and I, I don't think this will transpire, 
But I don't believe Joe Biden should continue um, and and participate in the least, even remotely, in the next two debates against Donald Trump. It serves no purpose. He's in the lead. I would say that even if he was behind uh, in the Electoral College, because the popular vote is people will, will put, as you know, put up uh, stats about the popular vote. And it means something in Canada because of how we divide our seats with the Electoral College in, Electoral College in the U.S., uh, it doesn't mean a ton, especially with the Senate, where, you know, California has the same amount of senators as uh, South Dakota. It means very, very little. So uh, what I saw on stage was um, the, the Trump that we had gotten very used to. I really thought for the first three minutes, I thought he was calm. And I think there were people saying, you know what, if you just be you, and, and I mean, a, the best version of you you could possibly be, which admittedly is difficult. Uh, for Trump, and it's still not a great guy. But be more, you know, calm. Be more cerebral. Joe Biden might do enough. Like, just give him the ball more. Give him the ball more, and he won't know what to do with it. And in all honesty, Mike, I want to echo on your thoughts about Joe Biden. I thought the uh, the push to back him during the primary season, I follow that stuff like a hawk. I thought it was a massive mistake. But they know they've done the research and the polling and the demographics and the idea that a 77-year-old, uh, you know, senator from Delaware, former vice president, could, you know, um, unify the Democratic Party, which often has seemed really fractured. It was very fractured four years ago at this time, and a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters would not, uh, you know, uh, advocate for Hillary Clinton. They wouldn't back her, uh, and that was a big, big reason. She had she made her own mistakes, and Trump did some incredibly impressive things to be honest on the campaign trail to get people to believe in his message but i thought biden was a terrible mistake but they know better than i do with the numbers and the demographics but i looked mike and i thought this is not a man right now who should be president and i i won't hesitate to say it i said it on the morning show for me this morning um there were elements of of obvious um senility that are um, pervading Joe Biden's verbal process right now. It's a problem. I don't know how anyone could uh, could argue otherwise. And look, I'm all about sensitivity and understanding that we talk about these things in a new light than we might have 20, 30 years ago, but not when you're talking about the president of the United States, not when the job has that amount of, of responsibility. And, and it's a problem for the Democrats. Uh, I just think most people have made their minds up, so it's not gonna, it's not going to turn the tide here. Well, we look at a man who is, like you say, 77 now, and it's not like he just turned 77. He's going to turn 78 on November 20th. There are a lot of people who turn 78, and they have everything going for them still, and they will live into their 90s and and be productive people on this planet. But you're right. There, there were some concerns there. And the idea that you are not going to be 76 next year, you're going to be 79, you're going to be 80. And, and if we're seeing these signs, what do you do with this? I mean, would this not, if you could have found even somebody who could stay away from the playground recess insults, I kept waiting for Donald Trump to say, I know you are, but what am I? I kept waiting for that to happen because it yeah. just felt like that was going to be a part of this. But are the Democrats going to be left, you know, holding the bag of saying, if only, if only we had found somebody else and and could have put them through this? I mean, it's not like you would poll or do your research on two potential candidates or three or four. I would hope they'd have a stable of 20. There had to be somebody else, didn't there? 
Yeah, I would say that's true, but I also look now uh, and post coronavirus. Um, uh, this is an unlosable election. This is an absolutely unlosable election for the Democrats, and they haven't had one of those in a long, long time. There have been people that have led in the polls before. Uh, there have been people that get on the debate stage and the support. Michael Dukakis is an obvious example in in the two post uh, Reagan years when he was running against uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. And I will bring up Reagan as well for, for the cognitive factors. Uh, you know, Reagan's 75 in 1986 and the Iran-Contra scandal hits. And, and many listeners our age or that were in school studying politics will remember that. And Reagan was able to obfuscate and, uh, and sort of play the, I don't remember, I don't recall. But at that point, you actually believed it. That's a little bit different than, say, Donald Trump's testimony now or Bill Clinton with Monica Lewinsky. I don't remember. I have no idea. I don't recall that conversation. You started to believe it with Reagan. So, look, you can't have it both ways. The Democrats were playing that card in 86 and 87 saying we've got a president that is starting to honestly not like, like just the heat's coming off the fastball a little bit. And, Mike, you know that with with broadcasting, with, with either news or sports. There are guys, Brent Musburger, for example, is 80, and he still calls a hell of a football game. We don't get to see him uh, on, uh, on, on the Saturday night football games anymore. Uh, Chris Fowler does a great job. But there are also guys that hit 65, and I've seen it with my own two eyes, and they start to struggle. So age is just a number when it comes to cognizance. We all know that. But Biden had, uh, I, I thought, a, you know, a rough night last night. This is so patently obvious to me that this is a one-term run for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris by design was selected as a vice president as someone that may even ease into the role. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how anyone could guarantee and promise that, uh, that Joe Biden will finish all four years of his term. Um, and, and whether or not it's more turned over as a ceremonial thing to be president and turn it over to some younger, uh, smarter, um, at least, you know, Joe Biden's accomplished a lot in his career but uh, again, like you said, 71-year-old Elizabeth Warren, sharp as a tack. She would have been dynamite on that stage last night, and you wouldn't have had those cringeworthy moments where Biden's addressing the camera or not able to complete a sentence. And make no mistake, he interrupted Donald Trump a fair bit also. Um, Trump was the instigator, but Biden, in a way, in a way played right into some of the, uh, some of the, the hands that Donald Trump wanted him to. And, uh, but I don't think it changes anybody's mind. I really don't at the end of the day. Now, is that enough? And and let's leave it on this. Is that enough? Because you seem one of the most convinced people that this election is, you know, is going to be decided and we're going to see the Democrats come away victorious. But there's the talk of, you know, making it difficult to vote. There's, of course, just the whole process and how the Electoral College works. Greg, what leaves you as confident as you are? Well, I think the mail-in ballot uh, issue is something that Trump is stirring up, and I don't doubt that there will be moments in certain states where uh, they will question the validity of the ballots. But I don't think it's going to be in big enough numbers because Americans are voting en masse via mail. Um, and so any kind of late run, I was thinking this in July, Mike, um, and, and Trump, once, once, mail -in, uh, once the mail-in ballots could be sent in August, that's bad news if you're trailing. And I, th that would be the same as if a Republican was, was uh, the, the challenger and the Democrat was the incumbent. If this was 2012 and Mitt Romney's running against Barack Obama, the idea of mail-in ballots is, is very bad news if you're behind. 
So there's just too many states that have turned uh, blue, and an obvious blue at that, that Donald Trump won last time, that he simply isn't going to this time around. He needed that triumvirate of uh, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. You probably noticed it, and I did too, the idea of Big Ten football being mentioned last night. And that was... <laughs> I brought football back. <laughs> well, yeah. Is he bringing uh, Is he bringing you sports football back? Are we going to... No, I don't think so. Uh, Unfortunately, let's get no. Trudeau on that case. But, uh, but honestly, I, I, that's by design by Trump. Because guess what? He's got the SEC covered, and he's not going to win a lot of the Pac-12 states. So he brings that up thinking, I need the Midwest. And that was very much... Um, I give Trump's people credit for this. Get in those, make some phone calls, get in some Zoom meetings, and talk to the, you know, talk to the, um, uh, the commissioner of the Big Ten, talk to, because they'd wiped out the season. It's very inside college football stuff, but you and I follow it, and uh, they wiped out the whole season. That'll mean something to some people in Ohio and Michigan, but ultimately not enough. And when you've got states like Texas potentially in play that might go Biden's way, that, that has not happened since Jimmy Carter in 1976. A Democrat hasn't won. And I'm telling you, I, it's up for grabs. Florida is always up for grabs. Ohio is always up for grabs. The, the math's just not going to work. Not going to work for Donald Trump. And even people last night, Mike, Republicans that are diehards, um, I know that they've, you know, I, I've seen them and I've heard from Republicans who've heard from Republicans who say, I, I just can't do it. I can't even hold my nose and go into the booth, even though he stands policy-wise, Mike, for much of what I believe in. I can't vote for the person anymore. And that's a huge problem when they're saying that. Greg, thanks for the discussion on this. All the best. Stay safe. Got it, Mike. Take care. That's Greg Brady from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And that's why he believes that this this is, as he has tweeted, in the bag. That Donald Trump is not going to be back for another term. We'll know sometime after November 3rd. How closely to November 3rd we know? Not sure. Not sure. May not be that night. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe this is all very straightforward. Maybe maybe it tricks us into thinking it's going to be all wild and crazy and then it's it's very plain. I doubt it. Certainly based on last month. We are going to talk about our opioid crisis in London, Ontario. And before you go saying, no, that, that's an old story. There's no opioid crisis. Well, all you have to do is take a look at some of the statistics that we have seen. In 2018, we had 457 opioid-related emergency department visits, and we had 62 opioid-related deaths. That's just in Middlesex, London. Last year, 2019, another 60 opioid-related deaths in london so look at those stats 62 deaths in 2018 60 deaths in 2019 we don't have the stats yet because we're not through 2020 just yet but that indicates that if we were in an opioid crisis in 2018 that we seem to still be in the same situation right now now, fortunately, there are things that are being done. As we've been hearing from Scott Monick, security at Fanshawe College is carrying naloxone kits. We have naloxone kits being carried by London Police Services and other first responders, London Fire Department, paramedics. But what else can we do? How else do we ease this? What do we do to deal with this? And 
another part of this, if you are someone who has access to an naloxone kit, how do you recognize that someone who maybe you're even passing on the street, how do you recognize the signs of an opioid poisoning? Joining us to help us out with this is Nauman Sheikh, pharmacist, owner-manager of MedPoint Care Pharmacy in London. Nauman, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me to the show. Well, why don't we kind of begin with naloxone? Because as much as we hear the name and as much as we may think we know what it is, let's make sure that we do. What is naloxone? Well, naloxone is a medication that is used to treat an opioid overdose. It would temporarily reverse the effect of an opioid overdose and gives us the few minutes necessary uh, to make sure that EMS is able to arrive on the on the scene and help the patient out. Uh, think of it, say, someone using an EpiPen when they have an allergic reaction, is you will call 911, you'll give the patient the EpiPen, and then you'll wait for the EMS to arrive at scene. Um, in terms of uh, a heart attack, we've heard this word a lot used by saying time is muscle. So in that case, if someone's having a heart attack, you would call 911. Often they will tell you to have the patient chew uh, low-dose aspirin, and then wait for the MS to arrive. Similar idea to this, if someone's having an opioid overdose, uh, you will call 911, and then you'll give them a medication to the patient, uh, and then and then wait there until the EMS arrives to make sure that, that, that the patient is taken care of properly. Now, but if there's no naloxone available, what could happen? If there's no naloxone available, the patient could die from an opioid overdose. Like As I said, Time is muscle in terms of heart attack. Time is life when you're when you have an opioid overdose. Well, then let's talk about having a naloxone-ready community. Mm-hmm. For someone who is able to see some of what is going on, what does having a naloxone-ready community mean to you? So the naloxone-ready community means to me is three key components. Uh, the first one is that everyone who needs a naloxone kit has a naloxone kit. So it's not like the kits are only available with EMS or the police or, or, you know, it's everyone who needs one gets one and has one. Um, the second thing is that, that people need to recognize the signs and symptoms of an opioid overdose. And then once they recognize it, they need to know what to do next. So that's and what can constitute as, as, as being a naloxone-ready community. And that's something that maybe we need to go over because, again, just like understanding that naloxone plays a part in opioid overdose, now we understand certainly what part it plays. When we hear naloxone kit, what is that? What does it look like? So naloxone kit is like this. Uh, it's, it's a small pouch uh, with, a, with a zipper on it. The, the pouch will typically contain a pair of gloves. Uh, CPR mouth shield. It would have an instruction sheet in there, and uh, and then it contains uh, the naloxone nasal spray, uh, or two doses of those uh, that that you will carry along with you. If you're coming to a pharmacy, the pharmacist will go over it with you just to make sure you know how to use it, when to use it, just to make sure that that you're 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 at ease in in how to use it. It's it's very 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 simple to use, and and it's very very effective. Okay, so simple to use. So if we if we go through, because a lot of people might be apprehensive by saying, okay, yeah, but I have no medical training whatsoever. I mm-hmm. have never even taken first aid. You know, things mm-hmm. like that will come mm-hmm. up. So mm-hmm. in terms of, 
of what you should do and, and how you should do it, maybe the first thing that we have to do is identify a situation in which it would need to be used. How do you recognize the signs of opioid poisoning? Yeah, so the opioid overdose signs is that the person can't be woken up, uh, breathing is stopped or, or is slow. Uh, the person is making sounds like snoring sounds. Uh, fingernails and lips are turning blue or purple. Pupils are tiny, eyes roll back, and body is limp. So some of those symptoms, you, you could see that, okay, so this patient or this person might uh, be suffering from an opioid overdose. Uh, in those situations, the first thing you do is you, you try and wake them up. So you shake them, shout, just to make sure they're, they're, they're awake. Then if the patient or the, the person is unresponsive, then you call 911. Once you call 911, you explain them the whole situation, and they will also guide you through the process. Then, uh, based on what 911 or the EMS tells you to do, uh, you will give a naloxone spray. It's a very, very simple thing. You peel the backing off, and the nozzle goes into the person's nose, and then you just press a little plunger at the bottom, and it goes. Um, then um, you can do CPR. Uh, mouth-to-mouth is not necessary anymore, so you, you can just do chest compressions. And then uh, two to three minutes later, if the EMS hasn't arrived, and the person's condition hasn't improved, you can give them a second dose. We're talking about the opioid crisis as an umbrella. However, we're talking about some very specific things. Making use of a naloxone kit, helping identify somebody who may have suffered an opioid overdose. And we're talking with pharmacist Nelman Sheikh, owner and manager of MedPoint Care Pharmacy in London. So it's nice to know that someone will talk us through that. It, it might even sound strange that this is a nasal spray and this is something that is going to assist someone who is, is overdosing. It, that's, that almost sounds odd. It should sound like you, you would have to jab someone with someone. There's no jabbing. There's no, there's no jabbing at all. There's no jabbing at all. It's, it's a simple nasal spray, and, and, and it's, it's very, very, very easy to use. And uh, and I recommend it to every patient that I think needs it. I would I would openly tell the patients that I think it's something to keep keep on hand. Uh, just as same as if I go on a trip and I'll make sure I have my first aid kit. Same way, if I think a patient needs an naloxone spray, I will I will tell them that you need it and you you need to have it on hand. And right now, as we've talked about, first responders will have naloxone kits. Security will have naloxone kits. But a lot of people will not have naloxone kits. What would you like to see done, Naman, to provide these? I think what needs to happen is that there needs to be awareness. People need to understand why it's important, why they need to keep it. I think there is there's a little bit of a stigma attached to that, hey, I don't use it, I don't need it. And you never know. And in my pharmacy as well, there are a lot of people who come in and say, hey, I live in a, in a building or in a place where I think uh, I could be of, of help if I, if I have it on hand. So it's, 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 it's never for you because you always keep it for someone close to you or someone you know, as you mentioned before, you're walking down the street and you see someone suffering from an opioid overdose, you want to have access to it. You mentioned it before, uh, time is life. So if you, if you see someone, you recognize the sign, and then you wait for EMS to arrive on scene, it might be too late. So the idea is to uh, make sure that everybody has it, uh, people understand how to use it, uh, just go to any local pharmacy, just ask them for the kit, and then they'll, they'll walk you through the process.
And as much as you might think, well, uh, I don't know if I, I want to buy a naloxone kit. Let's talk about that. Naman, oh, how much does a naloxone kit cost? Nothing. Nothing at all. It's, it's, it's free to anybody who wants it. Um, absolutely no cost associated with it. And you can make a life-saving difference in all of this because we are still in an opioid crisis. Naman, thank you so much for all of the information and for leading us through this. It's been really helpful, really informative. Keep safe. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Thank you very much. That's Naman Sheikh, pharmacist and owner and manager of MedPoint Care Pharmacy in London. Naloxone kits are free. They are free. They are available. And even if it's something that... You know, think about think about a purse or a man bag. I, I'm still being told by my family I have too many things that I carry around. You need a man bag. You need to have one of those, a satchel. You need to bring one of those. So in a satchel, in a purse, it's just one of the things that comes with you. It's not very big. And as Nauman describes, it's pretty easy to use. Now, Nauman mentioned a really interesting word that I want to get into. And that word comes up for a lot of things. That word is stigma. There is always a stigma that goes along with things. And the stigma here is, well, you know, I don't think I need a naloxone kit because I don't know any opioid users. That's probably not true. You may know people who have an opioid dependency, an opioid addiction, and not even have any idea that that's the case until maybe they're in a life-threatening situation. And in a moment, we're going to meet someone, and if I tell you right now, he is a gold medalist, he is one of this country's top sledge hockey players, he's a goaltender, he's now a motivational speaker, you would say, okay, well, why aren't you talking about opioids with someone? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about, because he overdosed. His name is Paul Rosen. You may know him already. You've probably seen him play. He overdosed and survived. We've been talking about opioids for the last 15 minutes. And we've been looking at the numbers in London. We don't have the 2020 numbers, but 2018, we had 62 opioid-related deaths in Middlesex, London. Last year, we had 60. No real change. That is not a statistical change. 62 and 60. And the idea that we can become a naloxone-ready community, that anybody can get a free naloxone kit, and you might say, well, yeah, but I would never, I'd never need to use that. I don't know anybody with an opioid dependency. How do you know that? You probably do. You probably know more people than you would come to expect who have an opioid dependency. And what if one of them did overdose? What if you were there? What if you could save their life? Because it is something that affects absolutely anybody. And our next guest can attest to that. Paul Rosen is a world champion. He is a Paralympic gold medalist. You've probably seen him making saves in the Team Canada net, playing sledge hockey. One of the best. And yet... We're not going to talk about any big stop or a game against Team USA or anything like that. We're going to talk about another moment 
in Paul's life. Paul, thanks so much for being here. How is Wednesday going for you? Well, first of all, thank you so much. I, uh, I appreciate it. I love London. Is uh, I'm from Big Bad Toronto, but London is uh, one of my favorite places in the entire world. Um, one of my first ever big games was we played the uh, the U.S. and we beat them five nothing at the John Labatt Center when uh, I think it was Corey Perry Day. And uh, yeah, I love London, so I really appreciate it. And just to let everybody know today the 30th uh, of, uh, of September, I am 20 months clean and sober for the first time today in 35 years. Wow, congratulations. That is outstanding. Yeah. Paul, let's talk about a time before that. Let's talk about your own opioid dependency and, and your own overdose. Yeah, uh, well, geez, I, I started, everything started with me, and that's why it's so important for me to be a part of this with naloxone. Is I, I started from an injury in 1975. I broke my leg playing hockey. I was 15, and from that injury, I got uh, addicted to opiates. I, got, I was taking pretty well everything, and I did it for years and years and years. Uh, you know, it, it got to a point when I retired that I was taking between 30 and 40 oxys a day we all know now that oxys are 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 tainted with uh with fentanyl and uh you know all you need is a little bit of fentanyl and and you will uh you will overdose one of my biggest fears now is relapse just from having something happen to me and uh and having having naloxone with me is is a critical situation to my long-term health um you know i i tried to take my life uh, it's it's publicly known. I've let everybody know it. Uh, I'm in the midst of writing my life story on uh, on January 30th, 2019. I uh, I took 35 oxys at one time to uh, to take my life, and and I tell people it wasn't because I wanted to die. I just didn't want to live anymore. The demons were so bad. We are talking with Paul Rosen, world champion in sledge hockey, world champion and a gold medalist at the Paralympics and a multi-time performer at both the Worlds and the Paralympics. And yet, Paul, you were in that situation, and there may not have been a way back. How did you survive? Um, geez, it was, you know, it was really difficult. I, uh, I, I look back on it now, and I had real good people in my corner, and, and that's the one thing that I had where a lot of people... You know, they, they look at, at, at homeless people. They look at people on the street. If I didn't have the support I had, Mike, I would be 100% I, I would have been homeless. And, uh, and that's why it's so critical that we, uh, that we address this, uh, this opiate situation we have in, in Ontario. We have naloxone kits that are available for free at pharmacies, and I'm not sure how well-known that is. It probably isn't as well-known as it needs to be. In terms of a naloxone kit, when you see one, what do you think of? I think life. I think that, uh, you know, I carry mine with me. I'm, I'm in my car right now talking to you, but I carry mine with me everywhere I go. It is so easy to carry it. You know, if you're, you can have it in your purse, you can have it in your backpack, you can have it in your back pocket. It's such a small, small kit that will save somebody's life. This is the most critical thing. And the excuse 
that people will come up with maybe money. It's free. You can get it at a pharmacy and you can get it for free. And it will, you may never use it and hopefully you never will, but you will have it just in case. Paul, you mentioned the demons that exist if you are someone who is opioid dependent. What is it What is it like to live life with those demons? Is there anything you can put into words? Well, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 20 months clean right now, and I still have uh, relapsed demons coming back to me. I, I, I have a, an addiction uh, doctor that I see and talk to. Uh, I, I, my girlfriend is also in the same situation, um, uh, so recovering addict. So it's just really talking about it with people that have been through it. Um, but the demons don't go away. They, you, know, you just try to manage them. Well, congratulations once again for you finding a way to do that because 20 months is a long time. Keep that up, and thank you so much for sharing your story because you know what? If one person can do it, somebody else who maybe has not gone through 20 months yet can do it. Maybe they're at 20 hours, but maybe this helps and and maybe they can do it. And having an Aloxone kit is pretty easy and it's pretty important and it can save a life. Paul, keep safe through all of this and thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Fightthecrisis.com. Go to the website. You can get an Aloxone kit in almost every pharmacy. If your pharmacy doesn't have it, tell them that they have to have it. It's going to save lives. Paul, all the best. Thank you. That's Paul Rosen, Paralympian gold medalist and, very importantly, an opioid overdose survivor. And that's why when we say, hey, th- this is not something that – that affects one group of individuals, or you'll never meet somebody who has an opioid dependence. No, that's untrue. You probably know somebody now. So having a free kid on hand, sticking one in a purse, sticking one in a satchel, and knowing those signs, that's important. And we'll have our entire conversation with Paul, and we'll have our entire conversation, just in case you have missed it, with Nauman Sheikh, who is a pharmacist and the owner of MedPoint Care Pharmacy in London. We'll have that on our podcast. You can go back. And Nauman goes through all of the signs, goes through how easy it is to have a kit. And Paul and Nauman can both tell you how important it is. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.